Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. There you are. Wait a minute. It says chapter 12 behind me. Let's start with chapter 11 a little bit, just by a little bit of way of review. (laughs) We looked at, last week, we looked at Abram's family line, specifically verses 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 32. And we noticed that Verse 10 opened up with the genealogy of, and we talked about how that was an indicator that this is the start of a new section. And we see that same language up here in verse 27. This is the genealogy of. So it tells us right away again, this is the start of another section. So that last section was only verses 10 through 26. So verses 27 and going through into and beyond the beginning of chapter 12 is the next section. This next section concentrates on basically the family that surrounds Abram and uh, his father Terah. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. So you'll see up here on the board, I've kind of drawn out the tail end of that genealogy that we had last week, basically starting it with Peleg, then Ru, then Sarug, Nahor, Terah, Terah being the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Notice these two names are the same. So he gets the name of his grandpa. I'm sure we can all think of situations in in this present day and age in families where somebody gets named after grandpa. So Nahor down here, probably named after grandpa, and then Haran over here. Haran, we were giving information that he's actually the father of Milcah, who ends up becoming the wife of Nahor, and that uh, Sarai becomes the wife of Abram. Haran not only has Milcah as a daughter, he has Iscah as a daughter, he has Lot as a son, and then a further comment that he died in Ur. Okay? So we get a little bit of a background on Milcah and Iscah when it comes to the women, but we don't get much of a background on Sarai, where she came from, Okay, at least not from this passage. We do actually have a little bit of additional information as to where she comes from. If you look at chapter 20, verse 12, it'll give you a little bit more information regarding Sarai. Somebody am I reading chapter 20, verse 12? Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Good job. Who's speaking there in that passage? Abraham. Abraham. Yeah, Abraham. He's saying that Sarai is basically his half-sister, that she's actually the sister in the sense that she comes from the same father but a different mother. All right, so that's a little bit more of a background then that we, uh, that we can get as to where she comes from. Some people might say, ooh, that's gross. He married his sister, right? Well, if you think about it, we're not yet up to the point of the Mosaic Law where that's forbidden, all right? And some people would argue genetically there wasn't an issue back then yet, all right? That maybe by the time of the Mosaic Law that uh, genetically there is an issue, but by by this time uh, it seems to be culturally acceptable and genetically acceptable, all right? So uh, the Bible doesn't have anything disparaging to say about that relationship as far as that being inappropriate. It's basically silent on that point. Regarding these names that I've got on the list behind me, these here, Sarug, Nahor, 
and Terah end up having places associated with those names. So these are names of people, but through the centuries they end up being identified also with places and not just from the Bible. You can actually look at archaeological evidence and find that there's actually place names that are mentioned or referred to that have to do with these people in our Bible. And where would they be located? They're actually all kind of right beside each other. Here's Haran. Haran is right in there. And then these other places right here. By the way, I should circle that one because we just talked about Haran right there. It says regarding Sarug, corresponds to the place called Sargi in Assyrian inscriptions of the 7th century BC, lives on as modern Saruk, which is 35 miles northwest of Haran. So if you've got Haran on the map here, 35 miles northwest is a short distance in this direction. All right. The next one is Nahor. A town called Nahor is mentioned in chapter 2410 as the home of the descendants of Bethuel, another son of Nahor. This particular town also is mentioned in the texts from Mari, that's outside the Bible, and Cappadocia, outside the Bible, from the 19th through the 18th centuries BC, as well as in the Assyrianist inscriptions outside the Bible from the 14th century BC. Later Assyrian records from the 7th century BC refer to it as Til Nakiri, which means Mound of Nahor. Although Nahor's exact location is unknown today, numerous references in ancient texts place it in the Balik River Valley south of Haran. So here you have Haran, and now you've got two locations that have to do with these names in close proximity to where Haran is. We're talking about just on the southern edge of Turkey, right before Syria. All right, so just over the border of Syria. This is using a modern map, obviously. Right over the border of Assyria into the southern area of Turkey down here. And then the other one regarding Terra, a town named Til-Terahi, or the Mound of Terra, is mentioned in 9th century BC, Assyrian texts as being north of Haran, also on the Balik River. So here you have all of these located where the Bible would suggest they would be located, and they're all attested to outside the Bible. You don't need to rely on this document solely to find out that this document is actually true. So you've got other witnesses outside the Bible testifying that the information inside the Bible is trustworthy. I think that's pretty cool. I like that a lot. Verse 30, but Sarai was barren. She had no child. Verse 31, and Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. Okay. How about Ur of the Chaldeans then? Let's talk about that as a place, Ur of the Chaldeans. There is a proposal, and there is an Ur down here, okay, right there. And this is, again, on the modern map, but you can see it. It's right there. It will. Maybe you can't see it. You're a little far away. If you were to stand right here, you could probably see it. All right, Ur, right there. So if you look at the distance, we're talking a long way. See that? Haran's up here. Ur's down here. This is, this is where they're supposed to be going, all right? So if this is the earth that the Bible's talking about, you've got this travel, this route, you would go all the way up here to Haran, and then you would end up coming back down to Canaan or Israel. All right? We're gonna, it's basically the same geographical territory. All right, Canaan or Israel. There is another proposal, though. This, this Ur, by the way, down here in the southern area of Iraq, the southeastern area of Iraq, this Ur, you can go visit today. Back in the 1920s and 1930s, Sir Leonard Woolley started some excavations down at that Ur, and it, Pretty neat stuff that they were end up finding. But there's been proposals that would suggest that maybe there were more than one Ur, because that almost doesn't seem to fit in a sense because it's so far south. 
maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I will say that there are other proposals for whether where the er could be that's being talked about or described in here, one of which is very close to Haran. But in either case, you either have the traveling going up in this direction or you have the traveling going slightly this direction for the first leg of the journey. Okay? Mm -hmm. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. Verse 32. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. All right? So here's dad. Dad dies up here in Haran. So the journey seems to begin in Ur, and they don't get all the way to their destination. Right? They get somewhat waylaid in Haran. In fact, it sounds like they settled there. It sounds like the journey that they originally started off on only got partially completed. They only made it part way before they end up stopping for a long time until Terah dies. Terah starts having kids at 70. We know that Haran died in Ur. So he died before they started their journey is, is what it sounds like. So it sounds like once the journey started, it's Terah, Abram, Sarah, Nahor, and Milcah, and then any attendant servants and animals or whatever they might have taken with them. Okay, and Lot. So those are the people that make the journey. They get to Haran, and they end up staying until Terah dies at 205 years old. Okay? Once Terah dies is when God resumes the call for Abram. When Terah, the father, dies, basically the estate now passes to Abram or to Nahor or to be divided between them. I should mention as well, regarding Ur and regarding those places up there, Haran, if you look at the names, all right, let's pick this name right here, Terah, and then let's also pick Sarai and Milcah. Let me read to you a little bit of what these names mean. Terah ends up having a translation, or it says possible connection of Terah with the word Yere, moon, and Yera, lunar month. And then if substantiated, would suggest that Abram's family and ancestors were worshippers of the moon. In fact, the uh, actual meaning that they've come up with and are proposing, the divine brother or protector is a reference to the moon. So that's Terah. Milka's name, it says here regarding Milka, Milka is the same name as the goddess Malkatu, the daughter of the moon god. And then Sarai, or Sarah, is the equivalent of Saratu, which means queen, an Akkadian translation of a Sumerian name for Ningal, the female partner of the moon god. Just in these three names then, the divine lunar protector, or brother, for Terah, for Milka you've got daughter of the moon god, and for Sarai you've got female partner of the moon god. Hmm, it suggests maybe they worship the moon. <laughs> uh, by the way, Haran and Ur were well-known moon-worshipping cult centers. All right? So this is the society that Abram lives in. This is the society that Abram and Sarah are in when we start off Genesis chapter 12. I should make reference to one additional passage. Turn to Joshua chapter 24 too. We don't have to read into all of this. We actually have the testimony of the Bible itself to tell us a little bit about this situation in Joshua 24 too. Somebody mind reading that? And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river, in old times, and they served other gods. Excellent. Thank you, Bianca. So here we have the testimony of the Bible itself telling us they served other gods, including the people we might be tempted to put on a pedestal, right? Abram's own father, all right? 
Interestingly, too, when we read that passage, who's, meant, who's left out? You've got Terah, you've got Abram, you've got Nahor. Haran's left out. Haran is left out because by that time he dies. Mm-hmm. So the Bible itself testifying that, yes, they worshipped other gods. So now we, we enter into chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3 are the, the original call of Abram that we know of. You know, perhaps he was in on it with Terah when he was called to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and they ended up in Haran. When we're talking about the culture that Abram's in when this opens up, we're talking about a culture that does not worship the one true God. We're talking about a culture that is unhealthy in a spiritual sense to raise your kids, right? <laughs> okay. Um, there may or may not be parallels to what we might be experiencing today. What I would say is, if God calls you out of Ur of the Chaldeans and says, I want you to leave and go somewhere else, and he's calling us out of a situation or a society, I don't know, I don't know if this is talking to anybody in this room, but I'm throwing it out there just for this. If God is calling us out of a situation, right, we end up, if we're going to be obedient, we're going to end up leaving behind a lot of stuff that we're familiar with and a lot of stuff that we might feel entitled to. Here's why. Because for God to call Abram, He's going to end up calling him away from the estate that his dad is leaving to him. The title, all the stuff that goes along with that, the responsibilities. He's going to end up calling him away from a society and his families. He's going to end up calling him away from the power and the influence that he has. He's going to end up calling him away from even the cultural things that he's familiar with. And sometimes God would call out to us, right? And would say, come out. Come out and be separated from that. So starting then in chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3... Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This statement, as recorded here, comes out of the blue. God chooses Abraham, and it's just, it seems to be just an act of grace on God's part to choose him. We don't know why God chose Abram. All right? We get a couple of clues as we read through uh, other places in the Bible. Nehemiah 9 7 says this You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. And then the very next verse says, you found his heart faithful before you. Do you suppose, according to that passage, if God found Abram's heart to be faithful before God, do you suppose that surprised God? Do you suppose God go, ooh, I'm so glad the person I chose has a faithful heart. <laughs> ooh, I'm, man, that was a close one. No. Creator of the universe, being omniscient, knowing everything, doesn't take him by surprise that Abram's heart ends up being faithful. God chooses him knowing in advance that his heart is faithful. God chooses him. From our perspective, we go, wow, that's incredible that God would just choose somebody. And he does that today, too. God extends his choice of his people, knowing full well who's going to respond and who isn't. Do we know? There's a verse in the New Testament that says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Does God know who's going to respond? He does. Do I? I don't. I don't know who's going to respond and who's not. So it's not up to me to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's up to God. God makes the choosing, and he knows in advance who is going to respond. He knows he's not taken by surprise. Ooh, I'm so glad the people I chose are all the ones that responded. So when God makes his choice of us, he knows in advance who's going to respond. 
In verse 1 there, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country. Most of your other translations that we probably at the table have at the table here, NIV, ESV, New American Standard Bible, instead of say get out of your country, what do they say? Go from your country. They say go, right. They use the word go. They use the word go. This one says get out of your country. He's taking a big risk, right? He's going to be giving up a lot. He's got to put all of his trust now in God because he's leaving behind the trust in man. He's going into an area of unknown. It says in Hebrews eleven eight, he didn't even know where he was going. God just points him in a general direction. He says, I want you to go over there. He doesn't give him an address. All right? He just gives him a general direction. God sometimes works that way with us. God says, I want you to move from here in that direction. Well, can you give me more some, some more details? No. You move in that direction. Our obedience, like Abram's obedience... We need to obey even without all the details. And sometimes we want more details. God, I'm not moving until I get all the details. Well, then how are you going to be a blessing? You know, If you don't move, how am I going to bless you? And how are you going to be a blessing to others? The being blessed and the being a blessing to others requires that you get up and move. So when God says move, it's not up to us to go, okay, God, I need an address. I need to know how this is all going to work out. Give me a vision of how everything's going to play out for the next couple of days, weeks, and months, and years. God says, no, you just go in that direction. I'll show you when we get there, this is the place I want you to be. But for now, your job is to just go. Your job is to move in that direction. When God calls us, we need to move in that direction. So he's given up his heir, he's given up his title, he's given up responsibilities, he's given up his ancestral lands, he's given up property. And one of the other things too, he's given up his gods, or at least the gods of his family. Back then, gods were actually reduced to the form of little figurines, all right? little idols that even in Genesis chapter 31 34 when Rachel is leaving her father Laban right it's time to move she steals his gods she steals the household gods and hides them in her saddlebag so I guess they're not very big <laughs> and she stuffs them in there right and Laban's mad and then he goes around looking to see if he can find the gods and Rachel's sitting on the saddlebags that have the gods and she goes please dad don't be mad at me but you know it's that time of month so i can't get down <laughs> the saddlebags and so he never finds the gods they end up taking them with them but the gods were considered to have only a limited jurisdiction or a limited ability to to work or protection a range of protection they can only provide protection so far so by him leaving the gods of his ancestors he's leaving behind that protection or that idea of protection sometimes we are hesitant to move in the direction God would call us to move because we don't want to leave that assurance or that protection that we feel like we have. Maybe you feel like, I can't move because I've got a retirement here. <laughs> I can't move because you know this hinges on it or that hinges on it. And if I, if I left those things, I'd be leaving those forms of protection that I'm putting some trust in. Even though I, I don't tangibly see any benefits of it right here and right now, I'm afraid that if I move, I might lose out on those benefits that I'm not tangibly seeing right now. So that's part of what he's leaving as well. One of the interesting things too is Luke chapter 14, verse 33. Over there, Jesus ends up having a teaching and he says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And you read that in that teaching. Jesus starts off that teaching by saying, You must hate your mother and your father. And, and you're going, Oh, wow, this is a harsh word. How can God say that to us as followers? I wonder if he didn't have this story in mind when he was doing his teaching that the teaching that Jesus is giving to his disciples is the same that God would give to Abram. That you're leaving behind all those other things, and you must be willing to leave behind all those other things, or as Jesus says, or in Jesus' words, or you can't be my disciple. 
you have to be willing to leave those things behind. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Abram did that. He served as our example. He left behind all of those things, forsaking them all to be the disciple of God. Genesis 12, 2, I will make you a great nation. The interesting thing about that word there, nation, it's the word goy. What do we remember about the word goy? It ends up becoming a word that uh, means the Gentile nations. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. How's he going to bless them? Well, to make them a great nation, Sarai, the barren woman, is going to end up have to have kids. That sounds like it's going to be a pretty cool blessing. And make your name great. Do you remember anybody else that was all about making their name great? Remember the Tower of oh, Babel story, yeah. right? Make Good a job. name for themselves. Yeah. They tried to make a name for themselves. <laughs> How did that come out? Babbling fools and blithering idiots. <laughs> all right, that was their name. God ends up making a promise here to Abram to make a name of him, to make his name great. He's not the only one, by the way, that ends up getting a promise of making his name great. God ends up giving that same promise to David. God ends up saying to David, I will make your name great as well. That's pretty good company. Next one, and you shall be a blessing. That word there, be a blessing, this goes hand in hand with the go. All right, so the go of verse 1 ends up leading to the be of verse 2. So you can't be a blessing here. You need to be a blessing there, and to get there, you got to go. You got to go, and then you're going to be. So God's word to Abram is go and be. You shall be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. This same wording comes up in other places in our Bible. One of the places that you end up finding it is in Balaam's prophecy, third prophecy. Balak is a king, and he wants Balaam to curse Israel. So he hires Balaam and takes up him on, on a hill, and he's looking down, and Balaam is being paid to curse these people down there, to curse Israel. And he ends up saying, instead of curses, he blesses. And so this is the third try, because the first try, he was hired to curse him, and he messed it up because he blessed them. And, and they get into this argument, Balaam and the king. And the king says, didn't I hire you to curse them? And now you're blessing them. And he goes, hey, I can only say what God fills my mouth to say. And then he does it again. Okay, okay, let's try it again, try it again. And he does it again. And then the third time he's going, okay. All right, so he does it again. But this time it ends up in the same thing. He ends up blessing them. And one of the words that he ends up saying, or one of the phrases he uses, is he says, blessed is he who blesses you and cursed is he who curses you. Very similar language that we have here in verse 3, chapter 12, verse 3. In that context, it's Israel. In this context, it's Abram. In that context, it's Israel. I would say this, though. In this day and age, there are a lot of people that would propose to you, what's our responsibility toward Israel? What is the church's responsibility toward Israel? And a lot of people that subscribe to replacement theology would say, we have no responsibility to modern Israel. They would say that modern Israel is obsolete. That God is now only doing things with the church. He doesn't care about Israel. But if you read through Romans, does... What does Paul say? He says, is God done with Israel yet? By no means. He's not done with Israel yet. So when you read that verse and you take into consideration that God's not done with Israel yet, then what should the responsibility of the modern church be to Israel? And a lot of times you'll find people will give you these verses or these passages. We should support Israel. Why should we support Israel? Because we'll be blessed. If we support Israel, we're blessing them and we will be blessed. And what's the alternative? If we don't support Israel, we will be cursed. I would rather be on the side of God's blessing than God's cursing, <laughs> okay? So this is one of those passages where even though it's Abram 
specifically here in this passage, the wording is the same as you would find elsewhere about Israel. All right, so basically, what should be our position regarding Israel? God is not finished with Israel. All right, We should be supportive of Israel, and we should recognize that there's a promise here. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who would curse you. Second half of verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That phrase, in you. In the New Testament, we have a similar phrase. We have the phrase, in Christ. What does that mean? In you. When it says here, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, it's designating Abram as the covenantal representative of a people. So the people that would identify themselves with Abram would be in the group that is in him. All right? So when God says, in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, when you identify yourself under the umbrella of Abraham as your representative, it ends up in the New Testament, Paul takes it a step further, and he ends up saying... Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul uses this verse or this wording and ends up saying that was actually the message of the gospel to Abraham. And you're going, what? That doesn't even sound familiar. Galatians 3, 8 and 9 says this. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Preached the gospel to Abraham. What was the gospel then? It says right here, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. This is a gospel message. Paul is saying this phrase right here in the last part of chapter 12, verse 3, is a gospel message. It's saying that the Gentiles can look forward to being justified by faith. And Paul expounds using Abraham as the father of us all, saying that he's the father of us all spiritually. He's the father spiritually of everyone who would identify with Abraham and his faith, Abraham's faith. If we are part of God's family based on faith, we are in Abraham and we are in Christ. Acts chapter 3, Peter ends up giving a message. And in that message, he ends up saying that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this passage. In Acts chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, it says, You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's that wording again. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. And the blessing to the whole earth is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ ends up being the blessing that's promised to Abraham. And that if we identify with Christ, we are in Christ. If we identify with the faith of Abraham, we're in Abraham. And we're recipients of that blessing. Does that make sense? I know it's a little convoluted. But just recognize we're talking about two different planes here. We're talking about the physical plane where Abraham is physically the father of all Jews. And then he's the father of us spiritually. Everybody that identify themselves as followers of God. If we have the faith of Abraham, we're in the same family of Abraham. We're in him. We're in Christ. By the way, that saying in Christ is a New Testament kind of phenomenon in a sense. That phrase as to where it came from. There's some discrepancy as to where it came from. But this is actually one of the proposals as to where it came from. That Paul using that argument is using the in you of Genesis 12.3, speaking of Abraham, and using that same meaning, infusing it, and giving it the in Christ meaning of the New Testament. All right. So Abraham. We're ending up meeting today then Abram, or Abraham. He's going to be uh, have his name changed later on as we get through further in, in the chapters. He ends up being called a friend of God in James 2.23, a man of faith in Galatians 3.9, and the spiritual father of us all in Romans 4.16. He is actually the most attested or most referred to person of the Old Testament, second in line behind Moses. And he ends up being the focal point of three world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam.
So, important guy that we're just now meeting, and uh, we're going to end up finding out more about him as we go. So the challenge I would say to us then today from this passage, what would it be? It would be that if God has called us out of something and we're only halfway out, we need to finish that journey, right? If we were in an Ur of the Chaldean situation in our life and God called us into another place and we ended up stopping in Haran before completing that journey, whatever that journey might be, we need to complete that. So if there's a call of God in your life to finish this work, then finish it. If you're not there yet, then get there. Keep moving in that direction, all right? And what would another challenge be? It would be be willing to take big risks for God. Be willing to give up everything that the eyes of the world would say, oh, you need these things. If you place your trust in the things of the world, then the things of God you're forfeiting. But if it's the things of God that you're living for and you're striving after, it may entail giving up the things of the world. There's a big cost in following God, but there's a big promise too. Blessing. Blessing for you and blessing for those who associate with you. All right. So I think those are some challenges that we could appropriate by reading this text. You know, the pattern of the way that God deals with people hasn't changed. All right. God wants to be a blessing to others, and he wants to be a blessing to us, and he's got no problem blessing others through us. But if we're not obedient, then it's going to be a little difficult for us to be a channel of his blessing to others. All right. So through these verses, Abram gets to be called as a recipient of God's blessing, a receiver, but also by the end of the passage in verse 3, he's a transmitter. He needs to be not just receiving God's blessing, but transmitting it. And that would be my final challenge to us today. We need to be just not recipients of God's blessing, but transmitting that blessing to others. We shouldn't be just holding it in. We're not called to be reservoirs. We're called to be rivers. Reservoirs just collect it all for myself. A river, what does it do? It passes along to the next one. So we're called to be a blessing to others, not just to hoard all the blessings for ourselves. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity once again to be in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the preciousness of it. And it's just so deep and so broad and so wide. We thank you, Lord, we can devote our lives to studying your word and we'll still only scratch the surface. Thank you, God, that we're never going to get to the point where we say, I know it all, and now I'm bored. (laughs) God, we're never going to be in that place. Thank you that we're never going to be bored. Thank you that we're always going to have something new to learn, some new um, fantastic thing that we're going to end up discovering tomorrow or next week, God. We pray that you would help us, Lord, as we continue on in this journey to find our way to our complete destination. We pray that you would help us to trust you. We pray that you would help us to be willing to take the risk of leaving everything behind that we've grown to trust in that uh, doesn't have anything to do with you and be willing to subscribe to whatever you would have for us, trusting fully in you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys have a great week.